Greetings everyone, my name is Dan Schaefer and I write and publish The Recombobulation Area. This week I had the opportunity to be the guest host for Connect MKE, the local news program at CW18 and My24 Milwaukee. Those episodes will air on September 10th and 11th, but if you miss them, you can check out the interviews here at the Recombobulation Area in podcast form. This week's episode featured a segment on the Universal Free School Meals program that was implemented during the pandemic, but is now ending for this school year. I talked to Aaron Gretzinger, a reporter at Wisconsin Watch, who wrote an in-depth story on this topic. And then for the next segment, I talked to former alderman and current budget director at the City of Milwaukee, Nick Kovac. This is the first budget proposal from Mayor Cavalier Johnson, and it will be presented to the Common Council on September 20th. Kovac talked about the challenges the city is facing and took a look at what's being proposed for the 2023 budget. You can listen to both of those interviews here or watch them on Connect MKE's YouTube page, which I'll link to in the post for this podcast. Okay, we'll get right to it then. Let's recombobulate. It is back to school season in Wisconsin. For many, this will be the most normal return to classrooms since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic more than two years ago. At Milwaukee Public Schools, masks will be optional and not required for students and staff to be wearing to start the school year as COVID cases are on the decline in the city. But that's not the only thing that's going to be different for this year. A number of relief efforts implemented to help people during the pandemic are changing or expiring. One major change has to do with school lunches. Universal free school meals were offered to children during the pandemic, but that program ended this summer. Joining us today to discuss these changes is Aaron Gretzinger, a reporter for Wisconsin Watch, who recently wrote an in-depth story on the free school meals program coming to an end and what might come next. Aaron, thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So what was the program that was in place during the pandemic? So during the pandemic, when schools shut, a lot of kids were left without this key source of nutrition. So it was pretty quickly recognized as a need uh, to get meals to students despite the disruptions of the pandemic. So a federal waiver was implemented to allow all students to access universal free school meals. So what this waiver did is it basically waived the application process for free and reduced lunch through the National School Lunch Program, which is used by most schools in the United States. So this federal waiver allowed essentially all students to participate in school meals for the first time on a sort of unprecedented scale. So we got to see the benefits of universal free meals in Wisconsin and across the country. Uh, however, that program has now come to an end and um, legislative efforts at the state and federal level have stalled to, to re-implement it. So a lot of students in Wisconsin are looking um, for the first time in two years without that option to have universal free school meals. So you mentioned that, that we did see some benefits from that program being implemented. What were some of those benefits? Yeah, so there were benefits on both the school side and for families. So schools cited a decrease in administrative barriers 
because they didn't have to keep track of students' lunch accounts. They didn't have to police which students qualified for free and reduced lunch. And experts said that this allowed schools to just give students meals like any other part of the school day. I think one expert put it really well that right now the school cafeteria is the only place where a student walks in and it's the it's where they're treated differently due to their income status. So it decreased some of those administrative barriers for schools while also curbing this phenomenon known as lunch shaming, which is essentially where students due to their income status, they can be selected pretty easily um, in the lunchroom if they're eating school meals or particularly school breakfast has a lot of stigma. So by allowing everyone to participate in school meals, we saw a drop in sort of um, this, this lunch shaming and experts say that that can be a really positive thing for, for participation overall. And of course, there were benefits for families. As I mentioned earlier, the application process for free school meals was eliminated. So that meant that families who were typically maybe on the edge of applying or qualifying for universal free school meals could now opt in. Families who maybe have never even thought of using school meals as an option could opt in. And that just created increased benefits overall. And we saw a lot more students participate particularly in Wisconsin, the breakfast program saw an increased boost in participation, which is a real big feat for the state, considering that we typically rank nationally in the bottom um, for participation in breakfast. So this program was not only in place during the school year, but also during the summer. What happened during that first pandemic summer of 2020 with this program? So I can't speak entirely to the specifics, but um, it's my understanding that the seamless summer option uh, was available to most schools in Wisconsin. So students were able to, to pick up school meals, even though school was out. Um, and that option continued through through summer, um, the next summer as well. So basically students still, a lot of students still had this option to pick up school meals throughout the summer, even though classes weren't in session or um, maybe their school was virtual. Uh, during the pandemic in early 2020. So there were still options for students during the summer. So it's my understanding that this program ended during this most recent summer in 2022. Can you tell me about what ended and what schools are doing now coming into this school year? Yes, yeah, so the federal waiver that allowed schools to provide free school meals ended in the summer. And there were some legislative efforts at the state and federal level to revive it, um, none of which have yet been successful. Uh, there was an attempt through the Build Back Better plan to, to re-implement free school meals. And that would have um, that would have allowed it, it would have expanded free school meals. Um, and it would have allowed a lot more students to participate. I think the number is somewhere around 9 million. And, but that failed um, when Senator Joe Manchin did not, did not pass um, the legislation. And that, and along with a lot of other provisions in Build Back Better did not come to fruition. Um, however, there was sort of another attempt um, at the federal level through the Keep Kids Fed Act, um, which did extend a lot of pandemic era waivers. However, um, free school meals did not end up making the cut. There were some waivers that um, will continue to relax nutrition guidelines as schools continue to face supply chain issues. And there were some temporary reimbursements for school meals that were implemented, um, but free school meals was not a part of that package, which um, many, many experts and um, agencies had advocated for. Now you mentioned in your story that some other states are implementing something at the state level. Uh, can you tell me about what some of those other states are doing? 
Yeah, so some states have explored an option similar to what the Wisconsin legislation would have done, and they basically are providing additional state reimbursements to, to go with the federal reimbursements that would allow um, that will allow all students to eat for free. Um, and I think that's in Maine and California are two states that come to mind, and there's some others as well that have really picked on to this momentum because like I said, the pandemic was a really big experiment for universal free meals. We got to see these benefits on a wide scale. And we know that when, when students eat, um, there's a lot of academic benefits, there's even some attendance benefits. And so seeing the wide scale effect of the pandemic really motivated uh, some other states to take action, even where federal legislation hasn't been successful. However, in Wisconsin, experts we talked to for this story um, weren't so optimistic that the state is going to be the best path forward to get universal free school meals uh, just because of the politicized nature um, in the state in general and of um, school meals in general. So in your story, you mentioned that Waukesha was one city that took a little bit of a different approach to the universal free school meals program during the pandemic. What happened there? Yes, yeah, so Waukesha sort of became the epicenter nationally of this debate about universal free school meals and whether students need it. Um, so in Waukesha, in the summer of uh, 2021, uh, there was basically um, the student or the um, school board had the opportunity to um, again opt into the seamless summer option, which again was offered through this federal waiver um, and would allow them to provide universal free school meals. However, for a brief time, Waukesha was the only school district uh, in the state of Wisconsin operating a federal food service program that decided to opt out of offering universal free school meals. So they were the only, um, the only school district at the time. And um, eventually this started to get press coverage uh, after a local group of parents and community members raised attention to this issue and started um, gaining press attention. And eventually this worked its way um, all the way up to the Washington Post. And when it became a national story, um, it blew up. One school board member we talked to said he received uh, over 500 emails from, from people all over the world. Um, the parent group that initially started um, to advocate for free meals. They received media inquiries from across the world after the Washington Post article. So this really became the epicenter of a debate about whether students need universal free meals. And also um, it really showed the politicized nature of issues on school boards these days, which has been um, a, a trend throughout the nation and, and certainly in Waukesha in this case. Now you have also written about how support for the pandemic uh, is fading in a number of other ways as it applies to uh, people who might be food insecure. Uh, can you tell me some of the other things that are now changing as we move into uh, the end of 2022? Yes, so the pandemic caused a lot of shifts in how food assistance, pro food assistance programs uh, operated in, in the United States. There were a lot of changes to the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, uh, known as Food Share in Wisconsin, SNAP more generally. Um, but there was a lot of loosened restrictions. Um, the maximum benefits were increased. Um, and yes, like I said, restrictions were decreased for certain qualifying individuals, such as work requirements, which in Wisconsin um, have, have long served as, um, as a barrier for some individuals to receiving food assistance. 
So even though we were seeing an increase in the number of food insecure, um, in economic distress, I should say, at the onset of the pandemic, this robust federal response um, to boost the food assistance programs, provide different things like universal free school meals and other economic support systems like we saw through stimulus checks, it actually served to really combat a lot of food insecurity. And um, a White House report found that um, food insecurity rates, now that some of those programs from the pandemic have faded, food insecurity rates are actually on the rise again. So it goes to show that um, intervention uh, can can make a real difference for people who, who are facing hunger, who are facing food insecurity, and who are not quite sure where their next meal is, are, is coming from or if they'll be able to afford it. So um, while experts would love to see some of these bolstered systems persist and um, seeing the successes of the pandemic, the polarized climate again at the national level and at the state level um, is probably going to be a barrier to seeing some permanent changes in the country's response to hunger. So um, the only permanent change we've seen is some is an increase in SNAP benefits, which is the first time in decades. Um, under the Biden administration. But yet um, a lot of those pandemic supports are fading and are starting to impact families and hunger rates again. So going forward, what are some of the things that ex experts are going to be looking at this school year? Yeah, so I would say one of the things to be on the lookout for is sort of this transition back to the free and reduced lunch application process. And a lot of experts have raised concerns about going back to this model after two years because a lot of families have um, you know, forgotten about this process or haven't been, it hasn't been at the forefront of their minds. So transitioning back into the school year, um, there probably is an expected drop in the number of applications. So schools are really going to be trying to raise awareness. I know in Madison, the Cap Times has already produced an article um, touching on this fact that there's a si si like significant decrease in the number of um, applications for free and reduced lunch. So this will be something schools are going to be combating, trying to educate families and work with them now that this um, free meals option is not available to all families. So that will be one thing to look for. And then I would say just more generally, the Healthy School Meals for All Act, um, which was sponsored um, by 30 Democrats in the Wisconsin legislature, that bill, um, its, its co-authors um, have said that it's, it's not going away and that um, you know, the statewide coalition behind the bill, which includes um, multiple school districts in support of this act, um, is still going strong and that they're making revisions to the legislation and that um, there may be a, an iteration of um, proposed sometime in the future. Erin Gretzinger is a reporter at Wisconsin Watch, and you can find her story on universal free school meals at wisconsinwatch.org as part of the publication's Beyond Hunger series. Erin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The year 2022 has been a year of change in Milwaukee. The city elected its first new mayor in nearly two decades, and with that election comes change all over City Hall. One of those people in a new role is Nick Kovac, our guest today, who has been an alderman representing the East Side and River West since 2008 and earlier this year was appointed by Mayor Cavalier Johnson to be the city's new budget and management director. The mayor will soon be unveiling his very first budget proposal to the Common Council. 
This is a very important part of city government where funding decisions on everything from police and fire to public health to libraries to economic development to garbage collection and snow removal. Joining us to talk about the 2023 budget for the City of Milwaukee is Budget and Management Director Nick Kovac. Thank you for being here. Happy to be here, Dan. Thanks for having me. So with this being the first budget in the new administration at City Hall, what should people expect to see? What is going to be different and what might remain the same? Well, unfortunately, uh, the, the main thing that's different about this budget is we've really had to look at long-term structural cuts uh, given the structural realities that are already facing us this year and will become even more acute next year and the year after for a couple of, of big reasons. But uh, the, the mayor has certainly announced some priorities public safety, especially uh, combating reckless driving. And so there are ways to make investments in infrastructure in particular, and also alter the investments we're already making when we redo roads um, to, to make our roads safer for pedestrians and bicyclists and drivers. I mean, everybody's safer when everybody slows down. So there's ways to re-engineer the roads to make us safer. And that's definitely a huge priority of the mayor, as is public safety in general, as is public health in general. So you are gonna see some new investments uh, some ways of reinventing the way we deliver services. We have a new Department of Emergency Communications, a new 911 center. We are expanding the Office of Violence Prevention, mostly through grant dollars. Um, and, we're, and we're looking at, at ways to diversify our emergency response. But that's all done in the context of less and less overall resources. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a big part of you know much of what the mayor has been saying in, in recent weeks talking about some of the constraints that Milwaukee has when it comes to generating mm -hmm. revenue. Could you break that down for us? Yeah, I would say there's there's really two big categories. I'll start with the biggest one and the longest lasting one, which is the fact that starting in around the mid 90s, the state basically froze and every year at least froze and sometimes cut shared revenue payments. Now it's called shared revenue, but it's our money. We pay it in sales and income taxes. For over a century, there's been a deal or there used to be a deal where the state government said, well, let us collect all the income taxes and then we'll do a formula, we'll do some calculations and then we'll share your money back with you. So the state would collect all of our, or does collect all of our sales and income tax, which puts us among major cities in, in this country unique. Most major cities have either a local sales or a local in income tax. We have neither. We pay a sales and income tax. We don't have local control over it. And for over two decades now, it's been frozen if not cut. So it's been cut by about 20 million but that actual cut in um, in nominal dollars doesn't reflect, the, the real cut has been $150 million over two decades. And that's annual, that's not cumulative. Every year we're 150 million short now, and that compounds with inflation and gets worse every year. So it wasn't 150 to start, but if you compound inflation over the last uh, couple of decades, we're $150 million short. And yeah, in some years the state budget's been strapped themselves, but in other years like this one, they have a surplus and they're not even adjusting our, our taxes back for inflation much less making the real sizable increases that would make us whole. So that is the biggest gap in our budget. Uh, coming in at number two, Frank, is now the new pension payments that we have to make, which is uh, really a response to, to global markets and projections about where global markets are going to be. Even though the pension fund has got more than $6 billion and is very well managed, we're just not able to count that money the way we used to because the global investment community is saying, don't expect the 8% returns you've been getting for the last several decades. So by having to reduce our expectations on what that $6 billion is worth, we're gonna owe at least 100 million, maybe more next year. And we had been paying 71 million for the last five years. So take the 150 we're short from the state, 
add in over a hundred million that we're going to owe for the pension. And you're really talking about real money. You're talking about almost half our annual, annual operating budget. Mm -hmm. So that relationship that the city has with the state of Wisconsin, that is keeping the sales and income tax that the city sends to the state, that's something that the mayor has been working to repair. Is that correct? Yeah, that's been one of his main priorities. And he's also tried to make sure that the state government understands it's not just the Milwaukee problem. Given the size of our budget and given some of our disparities and concentrated poverty, it probably affects us the most. Uh, we are the biggest city in the state, but it affects Brookfield too. And I know I know the, the, the mayor of Brookfield has had his back on this saying, yeah, we're, we're a very wealthy community, but the fact that the state's not sharing their money is, is affecting their budget as well. So when we get to the Milwaukee's budget, this, this, there's challenges with this shared revenue issue. Uh, and there's a number of other challenges, and you touched on a little bit there too. So last year, when Mayor Tom Barrett introduced the budget, he said the 2022 budget was in many ways the calm before the storm. Is the, is the storm coming now in 2023? Yeah, we're in the storm. We're in the storm. <laughs> uh, we... You know, we, we thought there was a chance the calm might last a couple more years because of the American Rescue Plan Act money, which was a huge infusion of money, almost $400 million into the city that we got to spread out over three years. And so at first glance, we thought, well, that's that one time money. Some of it we're going to invest in new programs, but a lot of it we're now able to, you know, backfill or, or fund core services with it. So we thought that might get us through the next two years namely the 23 and the 24 budget, and then maybe the real cliff would come in 25. I mean, the bad news is that real cliff is still coming in 25, but we're already taking a pretty good step down. Now, if we take a far enough step down this year, you might start to control some of your structural costs a little bit. So the more the more cuts we make this year, probably the better it'll be for next year and the year beyond. But it's it's really hard to imagine the expiration of the federal ARPA money combined with the new pension payment, which we don't know exactly what the new five-year payment will be. We won't know until next spring. When you combine those two factors, uh, it's very hard to see how there isn't a storm brewing, if not already here. Mm -hmm. now, and, and, and to more directly answer your question, when we initially sent out our requested or our instructions for departments on how to what to request this year, we said, turn in a cost to continue budget and we hope ARPA will cover the, the gap. ARPA only covered half the gap. So we basically said, never mind the cost to continue instructions, start showing us real cuts and permanent cuts because we've got to adjust to a new reality. So, I mean, that's what storm, I guess, means in, in budget speak. It means major service reductions. Mm -hmm. Now, you've mentioned a couple times here the dollars from the American Rescue Plan Act, which yeah. was, was passed uh, in early 2021. Uh, and a lot of that money went to municipal governments. Uh, so Milwaukee County or the city of Milwaukee relied in a big way uh, on those funds for their budget last year. Uh, how, how is that impacting the budget this year and, and going well, forward? Without it, the cuts would be unimaginably more steep than they are because we, we are spending uh, probably north of 80. I mean, the council still has to approve the budget, but they've approved in concept a little more than 80 million in, in investments in filling the 23 gap and hope, you know, and there's enough money to fill a similar size gap in 24. So whatever cuts we made this year, and, and you'll see those in a couple of weeks when the mayor unveils his, his first budget, just there'd be 80 more million in cuts if it weren't for the federal money. And, and I mean, I'm not, you know, that, that, that number might sound so big. What does that mean? It's hard. I mean, it would, it would mean um, 
massive layoffs in, in all departments. Mm -hmm. um, lots to consider here uh, going forward for the challenges the city faces. Uh, now, you know, just in a very big picture sense, uh, how does the budget typically break down? What are the areas that, that receive the most funding uh, mm -hmm. in the city budget each year? Well, we, we, you know, the, the actual city budget is about a billion and a half dollars, but large chunks of that are in um, debt service or enterprise funds like water and sewer. So when you, we, we usually talk about the annual operating budget when we kind of show our pie chart of where the money's going because, because the annual operating budget is the levy supported general city purposes budget is, is the money that kind of could, it's the tax, it's the state shared revenue we get, it's the fees and the taxes, we, property taxes we collect, and then we can distribute that in a somewhat discretionary manner. With sewer and water, everybody pays a sewer and a water fee and you get sewer and water services. So it's not, we can't take the sewer water money and fund libraries or fund police with it, right? So we, we usually sort of look at the general city purposes uh, budgets and you asked about where does the money go? The bulk, more than half of it has and always has gone to public safety. If you add up the police and fire departments, they add up to about 60% of that discretionary levy supported general city purposes operating budget. Um, the Department of Public Works, again, excluding the enterprise funds that are technically part of the Department of Public Works, but the, the investments that they make and what does the Department of Public Works do? Well, they do a lot of things, most prominently pick up garbage and recycling, uh, pave the roads, uh, it, uh, maintain the street, the tree canopy and the sidewalks and the curbs, all that, uh, you know, the nuts and bolts of the city street lights. That's all the Department of Public Works. That's about 20% too. So then all, so all the other departments outside of police, fire and public works is just 20% of that budget. So that's your libraries public health, the various administrative departments, um, and, uh, and Department of Neighborhood Services, Department of City Development. Um, those are all much smaller compared to the big three, police, fire, and public works. Mm -hmm. Now, the police budget is always something that gets a lot of attention yes. uh, whenever whenever we talk about this. Um, you know, where where is the police budget headed in the in the 2023 proposal? Well, I don't want to steal the mayor's thunder right we're the budget is, is still being developed we have uh from may till the middle of september to develop the budget and we'll print it in a week or two but i don't think i'm giving away given what i've already said i don't think i'm um uh, i don't think it's a spoiler alert that there'll be cuts everywhere including police and fire and public works city has to make a lot of a lot of difficult decisions um you know what are some of the initiatives that uh, that that might be brand new this year? Uh, the, the, you mentioned reckless driving as a top priority of this mm -hmm. administration. What what might pe people see that is a that is a completely fresh initiative? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, we're looking at various ways to invest, like I said, in the reckless driving and in the, in the narrowing of streets, and in some cases, like on Van Buren Street, you're going to see long term you know, protected bike lanes, hopefully that, that where the actual road is engineered uh, with permanent curbs uh, to, to be narrower. But you're going to see, I think, a lot more, and you're seeing this in other cities too, what we kind of call sticks and paint, which, you know, some advocates say, oh, that's not enough. And I agree, it's not enough. But in the short term, it's where you can have the most dramatic impact. And it's also how you can sort of test out new traffic patterns and see if they work. So you'll see a lot more sticks and paint, a lot more... Um, ways of, of making interventions, especially at intersections and narrowing roads uh, to slow traffic down. And the, the other uh, uh, big initiative, which might not be as obvious to the public, uh, unless you, and even if you do make an emergency call, you maybe won't know this, but we are, we are, we have basically civilianized the 911 center. We've created a new department. Um, 
it's so that the 911 will be, will be run as a separate department, which will, I think, long term will give us the ability to diversify how we respond to emergency calls. So that's that is brand new. Uh, well, it, it's actually been in the last couple of budgets, but the transition will finally be happening in 23. And I think long term that may have that may really give us greater flexibility and nimbleness in, in dealing with emergencies. Um, but that way, if you're asking for things that are new, those are the two things that come to mind. And so then looking forward, what are some of the ways that people could get involved with this process? Well, we, we just had a budget education week and there'll also be upcoming. Uh, we're going to have another uh, we're going to have a follow up and in-person uh, follow up uh, next week at um, at Greater New Birth Church on uh, September 14th. That'll be uh uh, next week uh, from 5.30 to 7.30, well, there'll also be uh, a public hearing where everyone can come. Uh, I think it uh, it may be virtual this year, but there'll, there'll, there'll be a, a public hearing uh, coming up after the mayor unveils his budget where people can can comment on the, on the budget in front of the, the mayor and common council and all the citywide elected officials. So that's what I mean. We, we've set up, a, we've set up some, you know, formal meetings and informal meetings out in the neighborhoods to get to where we're going to solicit feedback. But if you if you want to read over the budget and have strong opinions about the budget, you should email the mayor. You can email me directly too, and email all the council members because the mayor, the budget I'm helping the mayor propose is a proposed budget that the council gets to amend. Very good. Well, Nick Kovac, thank you for joining us today. We look forward to learning more about the budget when the official proposal is presented on September 20th.